Uh, as I said this morning, I'm excited to launch a new sermon series uh, with you all entitled Church Under Fire, The Seven Greatest Threats to the Church Today. And given this past week, it seems especially timely. Um, before we dive into threat number one for this morning, uh, I want to clarify just a few things about this series itself. Three, three notes. Uh, number one, all of the sermons in this series will be expositionally topical. And so I know many of you, like me, are convinced of the importance of expository preaching, preaching that is grounded in a text of Scripture, God's Word. And so that's what I plan to do every Sunday these next seven weeks. I have pre-selected the topics that we'll be covering that I think pose the greatest threats to the 21st century American church. But as Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. And so every threat that we face today, believe it or not, in some way was a threat facing God's people in the Bible as well. And so each week we're going to unpack a passage and seek to find a principle that we can apply to our modern day predicament. Uh, second note, just about the heart behind this series, the motivation for it. Uh, someone could see a series title like Church Under Fire and think, well, that's just clickbait. That's just uh, a marketing ploy to attract attention on Facebook. Show people a graphic of a church lit on fire while they're scrolling on their news feed, so they'll stop and take a second look. And I just want to assure you, uh, that is why we titled the series Church Under Fire, not Church on Fire. I specifically directed Pastor Thad, who was not allowed uh, to, to post any graphics of church buildings on fire, uh, because Jesus has already promised us, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? And so, unlike the U.S. Capitol building, Christ's church cannot be overthrown. You might wonder, why are you even preaching about these so-called threats then if the church is indestructible? My response to that is twofold, that while it is true that the big C church is imperishable, there's no such thing as an existential threat to the institution of God's overarching church uh, that could threaten its very existence. However, number one, that is not a promise for West Hills Church specifically. I think we need to, to recognize that, that we could theoretically, as a local church here, fall prey to any number of threats, and West Hills could be non-existent a year from now if we are not careful and vigilant. And number two, there are, just because there are no existential threats to the big C church, that doesn't mean that there aren't still real threats. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, but that implies that Satan is attacking us, right? And even though we know how the war ends, Satan can still win some pretty major battles along the way, and we don't want that to happen. And there's a reason that the Apostle Paul warns us to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm, keep alert. Why? Because 1 Peter 5.8, your, your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we must be sober-minded and watchful. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. That's the reason for this sermon series, to keep us alert and watchful, to try and equip us as a church with the full armor of God that we need to resist the enemy and to stand firm in our faith. Last note, number three, quickly, most importantly, maybe, as I alluded to, we are going to touch on some pretty touchy subjects these next seven weeks. 
Thad and I were discussing this past week, he said to me, listen, I know that you have a really high threshold for, for conflict, unlike some of us, that you're not one to pull punches. He said, I'm just encouraging you to be extra pastorally sensitive with this series. He's a wise kid. Uh, he's, he's eight years younger than me, so I can call him that. Um, but I just want to reassure you all again, my genuine hope with this series, with everything, all these topics, uh, the next seven weeks is to encourage us to take a long, hard look in the mirror of God's Word and consider the ways in which we all collectively, as a church, we have weak spots in our armor that leave us vulnerable to the enemy's attack, and they, they they've therefore need to be pointed out, maybe even poked at a little bit, because uh, you'd rather me find them as your pastor than the enemy, because he's got flaming darts to find those spots. So listen, if I, if I ever poke a little too hard for you, please just come talk to me, all right? Leave it at that. All right. So that said, let me poke for some of y'all. Let's talk about Wednesday. In case you've been living under a rock this week, or you're listening to this message uh, via audio, online, our sermon archives years from now, or because, as we're going to address this morning, the very topic for today's message, all too often these days, there are various competing narratives, versions of the so-called facts of a story. I think it's important that we make sure we're all on the same page about what transpired in our country this past week. On Wednesday afternoon, as Congress gathered to certify President-elect Joe Biden's electoral win, a mob inflamed by President Trump's rhetoric and insistence, despite all credible evidence to the contrary, that he had rightfully won the election and Biden had stolen it from him, that mob stormed and briefly took over the U.S. Capitol building. Now, there are various, numerous storylines here and lessons to be learned from this national embarrassment. That's what it was. But here is, I think, the most important of them all. The truth matters. The truth really matters. Knowing the truth matters. The attack on the U.S. Capitol was ultimately the result of ignorance. People not knowing, people choosing willfully to not know the truth and instead choosing to believe a lie. Wednesday evening, Polly's grandmother dropped by to bring us dinner and she was expressing her utter disbelief at what was unfolding on the news. She said, how does this happen in the most educated society in the history of the world? And it was such a softball question for someone who has been trying to witness to her for the past eight years now I said, because as it turns out, education isn't the great hope of the world. Contrary to the humanist, progressivist narrative, we can't just fix all the world's problems with a little more school. We need way more help than that, because our world and our hearts are way more broken than that. We need a savior. And the great irony is that you and I really are living in probably the most well-educated society in, the, in all of human history. We have virtually instantaneous access to more information at our fingertips, at the touch of a button than the world has ever dreamed of. And yet collectively, we may know less of the truth than any people ever. We have no shortage of information. We just can't tell fact from fiction anymore. 
And that's because we have entitled ourselves as a society to believe whatever we want to, to call it truth, and then not only to go unchallenged, but depending on the subject matter, it may even be a hate crime for someone else to question your truth. What we are seeing in our world today, friends, is the inevitable result of postmodernism come full bloom. It may have started with this ridiculously illogical but seemingly benign notion that truth is relative, you know, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. But postmodernism has now evolved, devolved into post-truthism. The truth is no longer relative, it's just non-existent. I mean, how did someone who lies as much as Donald Trump ever get elected president? How does someone who lies as much as Joe Biden ever get elected president? It's because truth has become merely pragmatic. If you can use it to your advantage to get what you want, great. But if the truth's not on your side, just make up a different truth, one that you like better, and then recast the other truth as fake news. If even Fox News won't give you the truth that you want anymore, just tune into one American network instead. But here's the thing. This isn't just a crazy alt-right conservative issue. Who can blame the angry mob when we've been told for so long that we are entitled to our own truth? Let's just cross the aisle for a minute. If you can be a man and call yourself a woman, and not only that, but expect me to call you a woman too, then why shouldn't the mob expect you to accept Donald Trump as your president too? This is not a conservative or a liberal issue. This is a truth issue. We have a crisis of truth in our country today. Both parties have discovered that they can exploit it, the alleged relativism of truth for their own political advantage. You know, Jesus had a really fascinating conversation with Pontius Pilate, the world's first postmodern. Right before he was crucified, it went like this. Pilate asked him, are you a king? Pilate wanted to know if this guy, Jesus, was a threat to his power. And Jesus replied, for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, confused, what does the truth have to do with anything? Like We're talking about power here. Pilate replied in typical postmodern fashion, what is truth? That's the million-dollar question in 21st century America. What is truth? Do we even know anymore? Well, friends, I've got some good news for you this morning. We do know what truth is. I hope you're holding a copy of it in your lap right now. We're about to read from it together. God's word is truth. If you don't have a copy, we believe at West Hills that truth matters so much, we'll give you a free copy if you visit the info bar. Let me just give you another reframed one-sentence summary for today. Just in case I've already offended someone so much that you plan on not listening to anything else I say, please at least hear this. It may paradoxically be more difficult than ever, but you can know the truth today with absolute certainty if, if you will allow yourself to be more indoctrinated by the word than by the world. The word indoctrination has developed a negative connotation in our postmodern world. 
but it literally just means to instruct in a worldview. Listen, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a lens through which you see all of reality and make sense of it. We've discussed a few of them already this morning. Postmodernism, secular humanism, crazy conspiracy theorist conservatism, leftist critical theorist Marxism. There are any number of philosophies, lenses, through which to view the world. Make no mistake, you are being indoctrinated into one or more of them all the time. Let me be a fly on your wall for 24 hours, and I can probably tell you which worldview is most shaping you. Where do you spend your time? If you spend 15 minutes in the morning in God's Word, and then you have Fox News on in the background for 12 hours as you go about the rest of your day, don't be surprised if your life starts to look more like Sean Hannity's than Jesus of Nazareth's because Sean Hannity is doing most of your discipling. And my plea to you this morning, friends, is be indoctrinated in God's word, not the world. Now, that's all the sermon before the sermon. Would you stand, please, with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John, Chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples during the Last Supper before they get up and head out from the upper room into the night that was, would ultimately seal his fate on the cross. This is what Jesus says, not to them, but actually prays to the Father for them. He says, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the shifting sands 
of this postmodern world of ours, when, when it just seems like a free-for-all for, for truth, who knows who to trust anymore? Who can tell fact from fiction these days? We thank you that we have a sure and steady anchor, a trustworthy anchor to keep us moored to absolute, objective, unqualified truth, capital T truth, your word and your son. Father, we confess this morning that all of us are guilty. All of us. The right and the left and everything in between, we are guilty of leaving that anchored, sure truth and drifting out into these seas. Because your word tells us in our sin, we love the darkness more than the light. We want to believe lies. So, Father, we need this morning to be re-grounded, to be re-centered, to be re-focused and re-moored, re-tied to that anchor, to your truth. Thank you for your word. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in it this morning? For our good and for your glory, we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So let me say this 20 minutes into a 40-minute sermon. Kind of front-loaded our sermon application this morning. John 17 recalls the single most important profound prayer that has ever been uttered. In history, many consider this, John 17, to be one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. So I'm not going to attempt this morning anything close to a comprehensive exposition of this chapter. All I want to give you this morning is Jesus' fourfold antidote to the threat of ignorance, ignorance amongst his followers. How do we make sure, as disciples of Christ, that we don't fall prey to this trap, to ignorance, to believing lies? Coming on, on, on board. You know, it turns out that Polly's grandmother was right about at least one thing. We really do need more education. If we're going to be a people of the truth, we need to know some things. But as we'll see, it's not just what we need to know, it's who. We need to know someone, not just some things. And our English world, no, probably only further obscures the truth because knowing the truth is as much a matter of the heart as it is a matter of the head. We'll see that. Number one, we need to know God's Son. We need to know God's Son. This passage appropriately begins in verse 6, and it ends in verse 19 with Jesus, the one who is himself, the way, the truth, and the life, the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me, postmodernism says all religions, all worldviews are really just different paths leading up the same mountain. Jesus says, if you're not on my path, you're on the wrong mountain. There's only one mountain with God at its peak. And there's only one path up that mountain, and you're looking at him. He says, I'm not 
a way, a truth. I am the way, the truth. That's exactly the kind of exclusive claim to truth that the world hates. That's verse 14. We'll get there. But friends, knowing the truth always starts with knowing Jesus. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name, Father. It recalls how the author, the Apostle John, opened his gospel in chapter 1. He said the word, the logos, the Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God is capital T truth, not just truthful. God is himself the very source and bedrock of all truth. And Colossians 1.19 tells us that Jesus was the full, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that Jesus was the perfect human fulfillment, the total embodiment of capital T truth. You remember what Jesus said just after he made that radical exclusive claim to be the truth, the only way to the Father in John 14. He told his disciples, if you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him because whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's why the Pharisees wanted to stone him. I mean, that's blasphemy. I am God. That's what he just said. I am God right here, standing in front of you. God in the flesh, capital T truth, embodied. Go back to John 17. Jesus acknowledges in verse 8, to God the Father, that his disciples have come to know in truth that I came from you, Father. They have believed that you sent me. Why is that important? Why is that eternally important? Go back to John 1 again. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's going to be point two in just a moment. You must know Jesus in order to know God's adoption as his child. But before we get there, we, we all love John 3.16, right? And we should it gives us, in a nutshell, the good news of God's invitation of salvation for sinners through his son, Jesus. But if you read on, just two verses later, Jesus warns us about the opposite, about the fate of those who reject that gracious invitation. He says, whoever believes in him, in God's only begotten son, in me, in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let me sum all of this up for you. Point number one. Know Jesus, know salvation. But know Jesus, no salvation. Now in case you are listening to this, audio only in your car, the distinction there was K-N-O-W, Jesus. To know Jesus is to know, to taste salvation, followed by N-O, Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, know Jesus, know salvation. It kind of loses the effect when I have to spell it, but just for those on the podcast. Jesus ends in this portion of his prayer 
In verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself, he says, that they also may be sanctified in truth. To consecrate is a fancy religious word that means to set apart for a holy purpose. Jesus is alluding here to his upcoming crucifixion and his subsequent gifting of his Holy Spirit to his followers. You and I are sanctified. We grow up in godliness. Think back to last week's sermon on discipleship. We are sanctified in two ways. By God's word, spoiler, that's going to be point number four in a moment, and by God's own spirit. When Jesus consecrated himself on the cross, he was setting aside his very own spirit. Father, into your hands I commend my, I, I commit my spirit, setting aside for the holy purpose of later filling us with it at Pentecost so that we might be sanctified in the truth. Friends, this is massive. What, what is the Holy Spirit all about? You know, God and Jesus, I get, more or less. The Holy Spirit is kind of this cloud of mystery. The Spirit is the person within the Godhead specifically assigned to touch your cold, dead heart at the moment of salvation in order to affect, to bring about your conversion, and then to keep touching your heart every moment thereafter to continually sanctify you further and further in God's truth until he finally brings you home. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you. Praise God. To summarize, once again, point number one, Jesus says back in verse three, the opening of this same prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die, Christian. It began the moment you die to yourself, to first start living for him. Jesus is eternal life. If you've been filled with his spirit, you should be tasting more and more of, of life to the fullest, of eternal life every day of your life as you're further sanctified in his truth. Point number two, to the extent that we know God's son, we can now know God's adoption. Adoption. Verses 6 and 10, Jesus says in verse 6, and by the way, verse 6 is sort of a summary, sort of the abstract for the entire passage here. You get all four anecdotes to ignorance in verse 6. Jesus says, yours they were and you gave them to me. This is John 1.12 again. To those who believed in the Son, the Father gave the right to become children of God. Adoption. But notice, Jesus uses the past tense there. He says, yours they were. Why? Because, as Ephesians 1 explains, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of through Jesus Christ. God chose us before we were even a twinkle in our Father's eye. Heck, before the world was even a twinkle in God's eye. He chose us. He predestined us. All who, of us who are now in Christ, he chose for adoption through Christ. Jesus reiterates in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Oh, 
Now, we, could, we could spend all day on any one of these points. We've got to keep moving. Number three, to the extent that we have come to know Jesus and therefore been adopted into God's own heavenly family as his children, we therefore gain access to the unbelievable, undeserved privilege of coming to know God's benefits. God's benefits, Romans 8, 17, says, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have now been written into God's eternal will, and God is a generous Father. Listen to the benefits, just a few, just a few of the perks. This isn't even a comprehensive list of all the perks of being a member of God's family. I count seven of them here, seven. Verse six, number one, most importantly, we've already talked about it, salvation. Salvation. Jesus says God didn't just choose us, he chose us out of the world specifically. He saves us out of the world we usually refer to Christ saving us from sin, and that is true. We, he, he did that, praise God. But we've got more enemies than that. Sometimes in Christianity, we differentiate between our three big enemies. The flesh, that's sin. Then there's also the world, and thirdly, the devil. And that differentiation may be helpful for us as we work our way through these next seven weeks, these, these threats. We are under fire, we need to understand, not just from the world, but from our, ourselves, our flesh, and from Satan, the devil. Take ignorance for today. The flesh is so problematic for us because no one spends more time with you than you. And that's a problem for you. Because no one lies to you more than you do. We all have lies Sometimes we want to believe. Sometimes we feel trapped that we, we can't get out from under. Maybe your lie is, I got this on my own. I don't really need God. I don't really need prayer. I don't really need to be in his word every day. Maybe the lie is kind of the opposite. And I'm such a screw up. No one could ever love me. We tell ourselves all sorts of lies all day long. And then the problem of the flesh is exacerbated by the threat of the postmodern world that we live in that tells us we are entitled to that version of our own truth. Don't call that sin. There's no such thing. You're not a sinner. You don't need to change. You need to accept yourself just the way you are. Trust your feelings. And all of that is being stoked and fueled by our third enemy, Satan, the devil, the father of all lies. We need saving from all three the flesh, the world, the devil. And praise God, Jesus has saved us. And right here in verse 6, he simply uses as a placeholder, he says, you've been saved out of the world. Number 2, verse 9, intercession. How about the, the benefit, the blessing of intercession from Jesus? Jesus says, I am praying for them, Father. I'm not praying for the world. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for you if you're a believer, if you're saved, if you're an adopted member of God's family. Jesus 
in, is interceding right now for you, as if it wasn't good enough that Jesus prayed for and interceded for all those who would come to him in faith while he was here on earth, just listen to what Hebrews 7.25 promises of Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know where Jesus is right now, friends? Where's Jesus right now? He is exactly at the right hand of God the Father. Why? What's he doing? So he can intercede for you and for me with God the Father. Satan, the accuser, that's what the, the title, Satan's actually, Hosatan in Hebrew is a title, it means the accuser. Satan, he's constantly, what is he doing? Contrary to popular belief, He's not in hell, twiddling his thumbs. Read John 12, John 14, John 16. Satan is the ruler of this world. Remember 1 Peter 5, he's prowling around like a lion here, seeking someone to devour. This is where we are, so this, Satan is here in this world, seeking someone to devour. And do you know what he does when he finds someone? Read Job chapter 1, read Revelation chapter 12. When the accuser finds a believer caught in sin, he runs straight back to the outer gates of heaven from whence he has fallen, and he yells into God over the gates of heaven, Aha! You see? You see what Will just did? See what Dalton just did? See what Olivia just said? You hear it? God, your justice demands that you deal with him, that you punish her. And until Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire, Jesus is just constantly, Hebrews 7 says, he is always living now to intercede for us. I imagine Jesus just sort of peacefully, quietly, confidently, joyfully, triumphantly, looking down all day long at us from the right hand of God the Father saying, yep, my blood covers that, yep. My blood covers that. Ooh, yeah, my blood even covers that. Man, my blood is powerful. And Jesus does have the power, number three, to protect us. That's protection, number three. Verses 11 and 12, part of Jesus' intercession for us is that he prays to the Father, God, keep them in your name. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost we sometimes call this in the church the perseverance of the saints. A true believer cannot lose her salvation because Jesus protects our faith. He keeps those he calls. Romans 8.30 puts it this way. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified, past tense. If you are truly a child of God, you've already been glorified. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6, period. There's no uncertainty about it. God's word is as good as done. It's as good as good. Jesus promises in John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're held in Jesus' hand, you're secure. 
But he goes on to explain here in John 17 that one of, one of Jesus' absolutely essential protecting keeping, persevering, guarding means of grace in our lives is number four, community. We talked about this two weeks ago with our mission statement. Community. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus prays that we may all be one, even you, even as you, Father, and I are one. Jesus wants us to be as unified as he and the Father are. How do you protect yourself from the threat of ignorance? How do you make sure you're not believing some ridiculous hoax, theory, conspiracy? Falling prey to the attacks of the flesh, the world, the the devil's fiery darts. Maybe you've heard the analogy before, the water buffalo. Just two water buffalo can usually protect themselves from a whole herd of hungry, attacking lions. They just stand butt to butt with their horns out. Three or four water buffalo... The lions don't stand a chance. There's just too many horns, horns in every direction. This is community. That's why you need community. Ecclesiastes 4.12, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Satan will prevail against you. Let's just get that out of the way. You try and, there's no, that's why there's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. You try and do it on your own, lions are, are bigger than wolves. Satan will prevail against one who is alone. Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Benefit number five. How about joy? Jesus prays in verse 13 that we may have his joy fulfilled in us. Joy. Remember John 10.10. Jesus said, I came that they have life and life to the fullest Know Jesus, you can know joy, true, lasting joy. But know Jesus, without Jesus, there is no true, lasting, eternal, untouchable, unchanging joy. Number six, holiness. Again, we spend all day on any one of these. Verse, uh, number six, verse 14, holiness. Jesus explains in verse 14, the world has hated them, my disciples, Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then again, he says in verse 16, that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You say, wait a minute. Are you saying it's a benefit to be hated? Well, according to Jesus, yes. Yes, when it is for your holiness, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's sometimes the way we we put it in the church. We're called not to escape the world. In fact, Jesus specifically prays here in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why not? Let's go ahead and do our seventh benefit, final benefit, of this passage, because God has left us here on earth for a purpose. Part of the benefits, the blessing of being a child of God is you, your life now has purpose, new meaning and, and purpose that you never had before. The Great Commission to make disciples of every nation. Commentator Kent Hughes points out, it's interesting to note that though Moses, Numbers 11, Elijah, 1 Kings 19, and Jonah 
chapter 4, they all asked to be taken out of the world. They were all frustrated and upset. And these stupid Israelites, man, you know, Jezebel's chasing me, Ahab chasing me all over. I don't, I don't want to preach to the Ninevites. They might actually get saved. They all were so, you know, over the world. They all said, God, just take me out of the world. <laughs> Kill me. Take me home. Not one of their requests was granted. Hughes says, we need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. We're just living in our little Christian bubbles. A hermetically sealed container decorated with Jesus fish stickers. No, Jesus calls us to be in the world, but distinct from it, not of the world. That we might be light in the midst of the darkness, salt in the midst of of, of a rotting, decaying society. Jesus wants to use us as salt to stem the decay of the surrounding culture. And for those of you who are convinced that Donald Trump was America's last hope of stemming the tide of decay, for those of you who are convinced that Joe Biden is finally going to get us right on the back, back on the right track, I've got some bad news for both of you. The culture is only going to get worse. It's only getting worse, and it's only going to get worse. There is no reversing the decay. Right? Salt, salt can just slow down the process until God's wrath against sin is finally filled up, Romans 2.5. But all the more reason, brothers and sisters, all the more reason that our ignorant world needs more than ever God's truth. Our world needs us to be light and salt, people of the truth. The world needs the truth of God's Son. It needs the truth of his offer of adoption to all who would receive Jesus. It needs the truth about all the gracious benefits we can now enjoy as children of God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You don't get any of that, none of it, without truth number four. Truth number four is the ultimate antidote, the anchor for all of it the ignorance and the chaos swirling all around us in the world, and that is, number four, we must know God's word. You've got to know God's word. Jesus says in verse six, they've kept your word. He says in verse seven and eight, everything is from you, the words that you gave me, Father. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And most importantly of all, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Game, set, match. This is it right here. Know God's word. You want to know the truth, know God's word. Be sanctified, be matured, grow up in every way, Ephesians 4.15 says, into Christ. The only way you can do that the only way you can come to know Christ, know adoption through him, know all the benefits of being found in Christ is by knowing God's word. You're not going to find out about Jesus any other way. It's right here. The word made flesh. The holy scriptures are all a testimony to him. They point us to him. Gran was right. We do need more education. Problem is a lack of.
of education. It's a lack of being educated in, indoctrinated in God's word. Until this book becomes our worldview, becomes the lens through which we view all of reality, the air we breathe, the water we swim in. I'm not talking about five-minute daily devotionals. We've got to get fully immersed in God's word. Until we do, we will keep falling for the lies. We will be unable to tell fact from fiction. The world is only going to get more confusing, I promise. We'll continue to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. God's word is the only sure and steady anchor. Keeps us moored to the truth of who God is amidst the swirling seas of post-truth. So my prayer for you, for us, West Hills, in 2021 and every day of every year is the same prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples here in John 17. My prayer is that God would sanctify you in the truth because his word really is truth. Amen? Let's pray.